Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 13 of Authors on a Podcast Talking Books. I'm your host, David Walters. Today I have the pleasure of chatting with horror author Keelan Patrick Burke. Uh, born and raised in a small harbor town in the south of Ireland, Keelan knew from a very early age that he was going to be a horror writer. The combination of an ancient locale, a horror-loving mother, and a family full of storytellers made it inevitable that he would end up telling stories for a living. Since those formative years, he has written five novels, over 100 short stories, six collections, and edited four acclaimed anthologies. In 2004, he was honored with the Bronze Stoker Award for his novella, The Turtle Boy. Keelan has worked as a waiter, a drama teacher, a map maker, a security guard, an assembly line worker at Apple Computers, a salesman for a day, a bartender, landscape gardener, vocalist in a rock band, curriculum content editor, fiction editor at gothic.net, and most recently, a fraud investigator. When he's not writing, he designs book covers through his company, Elder Lemon Design. Uh, also, a number of his books have been optioned for film, and he is represented by Mary Lee Heifetz at uh, Writer's House and Cassie, I'm going to mess this up, Eva Hefsky at Anonymous Content. He currently lives in Ohio with a Scooby-Doo lookalike rescue named Red. And without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Keelan Patrick Burke. Hello. Hey, how are we doing tonight? Not too bad. I can't believe you just read my entire bio. That, that's <laughs> like, it, I was wincing here because it looks fine, I think, when it's on a website. But when you hear somebody read it, it just sounds painful. I, I think I, I got to edit it down to just he writes sometimes. Right. <laughs> not, not, that, not that you did all of these things prior to writing, but just that you write and sometimes you design book covers. <laughs> no, I actually did all of those things you listed right before coming on your podcast. So that's how, that's how amazing I am. Wow. An entire day. That's amazing. Yeah, you didn't even. Whole day. Yeah, exactly. You didn't have to take 24 hours to do that. That's, that's quite impressive. Yeah, and it's the biggest and most compelling argument I've got about the accusations of procrastination I keep getting. So clearly, if I accomplished all that, I have never procrastinated ever. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, it doesn't say in your bio, but weren't you also, uh, didn't you also star in a movie? Uh, I did. It actually did say that in my bio at one point. I've gone through about 20 iterations of it, but... <laughs> Yeah, I did. Um, I was in a, I was in a, I don't know if you call it B movie, C movie, D movie. Uh, you'd have to ask the director, but it, it was a splatter horror movie. And uh, yeah, we did it in Buffalo. And I think I was up there for about a month filming that. And it was, it was absolutely fantastic. I loved it. Yeah. It's, uh, it's called Slime City Massacre. Is that right? Yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> so, so you, what you just you were like one and done. You're like, all right, this is my peak. I'm done. <laughs> yeah, it was funny. I kind of got hooked on it. I mean, you know, that's the, the age old story. Except usually the people who say they got hooked on acting are actually good at it. But um, yeah, I did it. I had such a blast that uh, a couple of more things came along that I was sent scripts for, and people asked if I'd be interested. And I was interested, and I planned to do some of them. And then I just thought, what am I doing? I mean, you know, this isn't <laughs> this isn't my fate. I I did the first uh, movie. I did Slime City Massacre for a lark. I thought it'd be a bit of fun, and it was. It was an absolute blast from start to finish. But I don't think that's me. I, you know, I don't think I'm. I don't think I'm somebody who needs to be in films. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't think I'm somebody that anybody's going to particularly enjoy watching. 
<laughs> in films unless it's Schadenfreude or somebody who really hates me and wants to see me get messed up. <laughs> is that like a personality thing or is it just like nobody wants to see my face or uh, what's the, what's you know, the name behind that? I don't know. I, I just think that there's so many struggling actors out there who could use the big break that some pasty ass Mick writer from Ohio doesn't need to be taking that slot, you know? <laughs> Yeah, you you don't need to be you know their starving artist for them. You just need to let them take the keys and drive, huh? Exactly. Sometimes it is okay to say stay in your lane, and sometimes it is perfectly okay to stay in your lane. And that's probably the best example there of just you know just write your books and shut up. Right. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. You know, just just like how all the you know people on Twitter and Facebook and stuff told you know writers, hey, just. Shut up and write. Don't talk about politics or we don't want, we yeah. don't care about your life or your kids or your animals or, you know, anything terrible you have going on in your life. Just write your books. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and it's amazing how often you see that. And I, I, you know, fervently disagree with it because I mean, you're granted where there are job is to entertain, but at the same time, entertainment doesn't come from thin air. There's people behind it. Right. You know, and people are going to be inspired, whether through their art or whether through their actions in daily life, to you know, by the world and everything that's happening in it. That that is where we get everything from. And to insist that we just shut up and entertain is, I don't know, it's the narrow-minded view of things, and it shows that that you know you cease to be anything outside of the books you're writing or the movies you're making or you know the jokes you're telling on stage you can't just be that that's not who humans are right yeah it's it, it, people people portray you just as a name instead of an yeah. actual individual yeah oh yeah some, of, some of us aren't uh, some of us aren't even a name <laughs> <laughs> you, you just you just flesh huh <laughs> yeah at doghouse 29 you know that's about it <laughs> oh man so um so tell me, tell me a little bit about yourself. Tell me, you know, growing up, uh, obviously over uh, in Ireland, um, and then kind of, I guess, your transition to the state side, and then you know, any hobbies you had going up uh, in school, so forth like that. Oh my God, easy questions. All right. Um, yeah, I didn't. Um, you know, I've kind of addressed the whole Irish thing a bunch of times. It, it's it's. I don't think it was that different from anybody else's, honestly. Mm -hmm. I mean, it seems to me that in Ireland, or sorry, in, in this country, that Ireland seems to be this, you know, beloved green fairy isle over there in the water somewhere, and that anyone who comes from it has to have, you know, some interesting story. But honestly, it doesn't matter if it's a small town in Ireland or a small town in Illinois. It, it's the same thing. You come into the world knowing nothing. You are shaped by your surroundings and you know i don't think that there's a huge difference between the two yeah. i've met people over here that for example the first time i, I spoke to richard chismer of cemetery dance on the uh cemetery dance publications on the phone i thought you know this we have a love of horror in common probably little else and it was just supposed to be this 20 minute get to know you conversation we talked for about three hours and the similarities between how we grew up and the stuff that you know our formative years and horror was just astonishing. So it's one of the things I love the most about writing and reading. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter, you know, who you are. The words can touch you the same and it, it bridges time. It bridges, you know, cultures and political divides. Even we're all here. And that's the only thing when you talk about, you know, shut up and entertain. Mm. The good thing about entertainment is that it really doesn't matter who you are. 
if something is written to make you laugh or something is filmed to, to make you recoil in horror, that we can all be reached on that level. And it's a shame that we can't let those commonalities override our differences. Right. And that was way off the point. <laughs> I, I, I do talk in tangents, but I'll give, you, I'll give you the short version of the Irish thing. It's just, um, I think growing up there did leave me kind of, I won't say duty bound, but it, it definitely made it so that there was never going to be any chance I would do anything other than write for a living. It's just, it is a nation of storytellers and, and I'm old enough now to remember old men and women sitting around the fire telling stories, you know, wind howling outside. It was a very atmospheric type of maturity for me. Mm. And I never really got over that. that. That left a lasting impression on me that I just wanted to do the same for others as the people in Ireland had done for me, as the elders in Ireland had done for me, which is create this environment where we were more inclined to sit around and uh, practice the tradition of oral storytelling more than we were to seek out alternate means of entertainment, like, oh, what's on the TV? The TV was always secondary. And indeed, that was another part of my youth that, sure, I loved watching television, but at the same time, I preferred to be outdoors mm-hmm. as much as possible. And, you know, that's where the stories are. Yeah. I think that, you know, there's a big, a fundamental difference in the the generations now. We are growing up surrounded by technology and it's just so many distractions that it's hard to really glean from the outside world anything that's not being delivered to you on a phone. And I can't imagine growing up that way. I mean, I, no disrespect to that, to these generations. There's enough of that. You know, people trouncing on other generations. Oh, you're so different. We all sound like old men. But And I don't have any, you know, I don't have really any feelings on the subject at all. People grow up in the time that they're in, and that's that's just the way it is. But for me, I can't imagine if it was me now growing up that my storytelling wouldn't be radically different. And, you know, having to grow up and... Even as an adult, learning the new ways to deliver the stories to people has been a challenge. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, so when I came here, I think that uh, I took with me a lot of that cold, rainy afternoon mentality where, you know, you're either thinking along those lines of that gloomy environment or those mist-shrouded streets or you're thinking of your grandfather telling you stories at Halloween by candlelight or firelight. And that didn't change. I got here and it was all sunny. It was lovely. It was a big sprawling country. You know, there was lots to see. And when I traveled it and saw as much of it as I could, I just added that to the basket and it affected the way the stories came out. I gotcha. Yeah. And, and, you know, and the only reason I, I guess people ask about, you know, the difference between like Ireland and here is just because a lot of us haven't, I guess, traveled over there to see how, I guess normal it is. <laughs> you know, you we, should we, go. we see that's we see the, it that's the only way you'll ever know is not by people telling you, but to go and see for yourself. Right, right. You know, we, we see it, you know, different countries portrayed in movies and we hear that, you know, when people travel over there and they're like, Oh my gosh, this, this, and this, and you're like, Oh, that's great, you know. And, and we can visualize yeah. it, but you know, without actually stepping foot on solid ground, it's really hard to to kind of stop thinking about what you see on a daily basis. Yeah, but I'll tell you off the top of my head that I don't actually, and I could be wrong, but I don't actually believe that there has been a film depiction of Ireland that was any good unless it was a film that was made in Ireland. 
Right. I just don't know what it is like, and a lot of them have been cringe-inducingly bad. You know, the whole everybody speaks like a leprechaun, and they all have red hair, and Jesus. But um, <laughs> you know, people actually say to me, "Deadpan," when they meet me. So, does everyone from Ireland have red hair? And they're looking at me, who doesn't have red hair, while they're asking. Right. And I'm like, "Yep, yeah, every one of them. Everybody has pots of gold. Everybody's fine. None of them are over four feet high." <laughs> And, you know, sometimes, you know, at night they, uh, they become, you know, serial killers, man. You know, it's, it is what it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, we all get bored. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're either drinking or killing, right? <laughs> if you've got a serial kill a couple of people, then, you know, you just you do it. <laughs> right. <laughs> Irish, Irish people are genetically haunted anyway. You got to just kind of keep building on that or you collapse. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so tell me, so obviously you you had a plethora of jobs prior to, I guess, settling down to write. I'm sure you wrote some in between all those different jobs. But I, I want to know, what was the worst job you ever had and what was the best job you ever had, excluding writing? Um, I think the worst job I ever had was my first, which was waiting tables. Like, I mean, the job itself, the the act of delivering food to people, wasn't inherently bad. I, and I loved the hotel I was working in at the time. It's one of the most beautiful hotels I've ever seen. Um, and there's at least half a novel set there somewhere on my hard drive, but yeah, I loved it. But I was never treated with such little respect as, uh, as in those days. You were just basically treated like, like dirt. And it wasn't just me, it was everybody. Every, everybody on the wait staff was treated like they were dogs. And it's easy to say that you get an image in your mind of being snapped at or something. You know, oh, no, you did something wrong. Mm -hmm. No, we were just basically treated like absolute dirt. Mm -hmm. And I've never seen anything like that since in any of the jobs I've had. Sure, you'll have a boss who's an asshole. You have somebody that you don't get along with or you, you just don't click in the job and you're miserable there. There's all sorts of reasons to not like the job you have. But I was, I think, 18 at the time. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, Unless you were over the age of 50, I think you got treated like you were some kind of a parasite and you were disposable and everybody knew it. Right. And we had a particular troll-like manager who, uh, if he didn't like the way you were doing things, would grab you and start screaming into your face right by the table you were serving. Oh, gosh. And then you had to turn around red-faced and sweating and, you know, shaking and excuse me, apologize to the people who are always invariably sympathetic and looking at you like, God, I'd hate to have your job. And you're like, yeah, God, I absolutely hated to have it myself. <laughs> All right. But it was just horrible. And I remember leaving every single day absolutely depressed before I even knew what the full definition of depression was. I just knew I was absolutely miserable and wanted to die and I didn't want to do this job anymore. But I was saving for my own education, so I had to do it. And there weren't very many jobs. You could get a, a weight job anywhere. It's the same as now. You know, it's the most reliable um, job out there because there's always somebody leaving. They always need more people. But yeah, that was that was sucky. I uh, I don't miss that one. But it was also, you know, you have to learn from everything. It also just showed me that. Jobs like this exist. This is where, you know, people have to work hard for this money. They work thankless hours for shit pay and then get treated like crap on top of it, which is why I remain one of those people that if I go to a restaurant and I order a steak 
and the guy brings me uh, a rotten lobster, I will politely say, oh, sorry, that's not what I ordered. And I will still tip him 20, 25%. I'll always do it. It doesn't matter if my waiter's rude. I don't care. I just, across the board universally, I'll just do it. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I don't know the kind of day this person has had. They, they could have, you know, they could have 65 children and <laughs> be driven out of their minds with stress. And suddenly somebody comes in and, you know, you, you always, and I see this and it drives me nuts. You always have rude customers, somebody snapping at a waiter or a waitress and they just don't care. They just, they, a lot of people treat wait staff like they're underlings, like that they mean nothing, not like they're people who are doing a job and providing a service. And it, it absolutely infuriates me. I can't stand it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, so, so my sister was a server throughout college and then I, uh, was a server for, I guess about, about six months. And, uh, and, and I tell everybody, cause you know, people ask you obviously always about your job experience and so forth. And I was like, I think everybody needs to do that job for at least five to six months because then yep. you'll, because like you're saying, you'll really realize, man, this job actually really sucks and you get paid absolutely nothing. Everything's on tips. And, you know, half the time the you know people you're waiting on are either they're, they either don't tip, they're rude, they send everything back, they're never happy, you know, et cetera. And you just have to kind of hold all that in while putting on a smile. And it's just, it's depressing, like you said. Yeah, and then the thing is, like in Ireland, you don't work on a tip system. You get a, a weekly wage, mm. and and the weekly wage I think was probably about eighty, eighty uh, pounds at the time, mm. a week. And now that's obviously we're talking twenty, thirty years ago, but right. um, well, not quite thirty. Jesus, I'm aging myself. <laughs> it was it was a long time ago, but. Uh, <laughs> So it would be more now, and I'm yeah. sure it's improved a lot since then. Right. But still, to be making that kind of money and having to endure all that crap, and you know, I was working, I think, eleven o'clock a.m. to eleven, oh, sorry, one p.m. or one a.m. or whatever, and yeah. then going home and cycling four or five miles home, and then having to come back and do it all over again for weeks on end. It's amazing I didn't snap and kill everyone. Right. <laughs> That'll be, that'll be a great premise for your next book. <laughs> it is. It's actually, it's not not quite that, but I do have a horror story set in that hotel that I someday will go back and finish. But it's, uh, yeah, I, I get my vengeance. The best the best way that I know how. Right, right. <laughs> so, so what about, uh, I guess, what about the best job? The best job would probably be uh, my last one, which is a fraud investigator. Mm-hmm. Um, I absolutely love that. I loved... Now, I hated the environment. I hated sitting in an office and being there for God knows how many hours a day, um, almost seven days a week. But I loved being presented with this absolute mound of messy evidence and trying to figure out the puzzle of where all this money went and who took it. Was it just a mistake? Is somebody up to something? And basically following the 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 evidence along the path, the breadcrumbs, until you could come up with a cohesive idea who most likely was behind it, and then getting to call them, and then getting to talk on the phone, and then getting to coordinate the police response, it was all very exciting. But every day was a puzzle. I just walk into a stack of paper with numbers on it and 
photocopied sheets of, you know, uh, signed documents and basically had to go through the whole thing and figure out what was going on and who did it. And I loved it. Yeah, it's funny that you say that because uh, so there's a new, I guess, uh, docu-series on HBO that just started Monday uh, called McMillions. I don't know yeah. if you, about about the uh, McDonald's Monopoly game, but how that's right. I saw the first episode last. Yeah, time. yeah, we we watched it last night too. I thought I thought that was so cool because I never knew that there was this whole like ring of people making all this money in like one area. Oh yeah, yeah, and it happens more often than you think. I mean, a lot of what we had to do was uh, figure out why everybody going to a hotel was getting fraud charges racked up on their credit cards. You know. Mm. And it was all, you know, there was a um, one of the kitchen porters was taking their cards and bringing them out to a van in the parking lot and having them cloned. Ah. Oh. And wow. it took us like, we narrowed it down from 120, it, it, because it gets filtered and it looks like it's from a ton of different uh, hotels until you realize that they're all owned by the same person. So it's going through a processor and then... You follow the chain, but it was uh, it was exciting stuff. I love that. Yeah. And if I ever, you know, if I if I decide in the morning I can't write anymore, which will never happen, I'll die first. But <laughs> if, if it did, and I had to go back into the the workforce, I think that's what I would do again. I gotcha. So, so do you write full time now? I do. Yeah, I write and do the design work. That's okay. That's my life now. I gotcha. It's not a bad life. Huh? I said it's not a bad life. Oh, no, not at all. I mean, I don't think I've ever had a bad life. I yeah. mean, when I took, think back on all the worst things that have happened to me, you know, at the time I would have said it was, you know, my life sucks. Right. And especially in my teenage years when I walk around and go, oh, life's terrible. <laughs> Let me write a song about it. Right. <laughs> um, honest, in fairness, and I think if anything, the last couple of years in this country have brought things to light that things could always have been a lot, a lot worse and people have always had it worse than me. So I don't right. really have any grounds for complaint. And if I did... Then I will just take that complaint, roll it up in a ball, make a character out of it, put it in a book, and then kill him. There you go. There you go. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where you know everything that you've had up to this point has just kind of shaped you into who you are now, and so you know. Yeah, you exactly. Continue and, and on. You know, when you think of it, um, when people say to you, you know, you had a very privileged life, and you think of all the horrible things that happened, the poverty you grew up in, your privilege is still better like i mean you're, you're what you consider your lack of privilege is always privilege to somebody else right. you know yeah and it, it is we honestly have no no cause for complaint and i don't know every day my eyes are open a little bit further of just how bad other people have it mm -hmm. but rather than say oh well you know i'm lucky it's not like that you you take active measures to try and make it better for other people right or what's the point what's the point of any of it right Absolutely. So uh, I know, uh, you know, you had a family full of storytellers and your mother loved the horror genre and so forth. Would you say that they're your main influences as to why you got into writing or did you, you know, grow up reading a lot and you had some authors that influenced you to kind of decide to try your hand at it? Oh yeah. For as long as I can remember, I've been reading and that was, uh, that was my mom's doing. She had me reading as, as soon as my eyes were open, you know, it was, mm -hmm. It was a fantastic way to grow up because I, I remember so many years of just stacking books into the shelves that I had in my room. And just like I had a full library by the time I was 11. And we didn't have much money, very little money, in fact. And 
no matter how many times my uh, my mom would complain about that, she would always bring a book home for me when she went shopping. Mm. It was it was the one thing that was non-negotiable. You know, if it came to well, I can buy a loaf of bread, a carton of milk, and maybe some cheese for a sandwich. I'd get a book instead, and we'd have no cheese. You know, so <laughs> so it was. You know, of course, you're gonna have people on Twitter now going, "No, that's abuse." But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, watch out for the PC yeah. crowd. <laughs> yeah, we shouldn't be withholding cheese from Irish people. But uh, <laughs> no, but it was, and you know, through that, then obviously, I was inspired. The first inspiration I can recall was Edgar Allan Poe because I was reading an illustrated uh, book of his stories, and the illustrations terrified me. They were just these cross-hatched, really vivid, creepy pictures, and I got a jolt from them. I didn't, you know, I wasn't scared. I, I just, I thought, Woo, that's effective. And it enhanced the story for me exactly as good illustrations are supposed to. Mm-hmm. And it, I remember the the seed sprouting where I thought, you know, I could do this. I could, I could write stories. I could, I could scare people if I wanted to. And as the years went on and I read more and more and more, it obviously expanded. I read the classics, um, and then discovered Stephen King. My mom was an avid reader of his books, so I snuck one of hers out, and I read, I think, Pet Cemetery when I was about 13, maybe. And I absolutely adored it. It scared the hell out of me, and I was I was exhilarated by that. And I thought, yeah, you know what? I'm doing this. I, I don't care. I'm just going to do it. I'm going to write these stories, and I'm going to scare people. I want to do for other people what this book did for me. Yeah. yeah. And then I, from there, I was exposed a lot to the British uh, horror writers like Graham Masterson, James Herbert, Ramsey Campbell, Stephen Laws, Michael Marshall Smith. A ton of this stuff was just at my at my fingertips, and I read as much of it as I could get my hands on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there it was everybody. It was you know I mean name an author. I'm sure I've read at least one of their books if they're in the horror genre. Right, right. Yeah, and it was Pop- Poppy Z. Bright. Then came along and basically finished what James Herbert had started and said, hey, look, you can get really, really violent as long as you do it really, really well. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, yeah. you know, you, you've got the, the the pulpy, you know, gory type horror writers, and then you have the ones that are, it's kind of like sitting in the back of your mind, kind of creeping up on you. You know, I, yeah. I, I guess I look at like Stephen Graham Jones as being that one where it's just kind of creeping in the background. Um, oh, he's fantastic. Oh, he so is. I, I, I've been recommending The Only Good Indians to like everybody that I can come across. Uh, it comes out, I think it's in May. Uh, of I, read a, I read a galley of that, I think, right before Christmas. And I thought, I'm going to hold off saying anything about it because I want to, in January, say it's the best book I'm going to read this year. Right. <laughs> it was amazing and deeply, deeply unsettling. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and I actually just finished, uh, Paul Tremblay's survivor song a couple of weeks ago. Um, yeah, I, I've been, you know, reading his books as they come out every single year. Um, since, you know, he, I, I feel like his face is kind of the quote unquote leading the charge, I guess, for the, the new wave of horror that's coming out, but it's just so, so great seeing all these horror authors that are just, I mean, just, you know, pounding the pavement, putting out all these books, you know, especially you. I mean, I think since I started reading, uh, you know, your short stories a couple of years ago, I mean, it's just like, boom, boom, boom. Here's a new, here's a new release. Um, and, and I'm uh, one of the slower writers out there. I've been working on the same novel for six years. 
All these guys piss me off. They're great writers, but here they are firing these books out. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, here I go, chapter 29. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. And that would be fine if it came out and said, wow, six years. This is going to be your East of Eden. But no, it's not. It's going to be, yeah. (laughs) All right. So uh, so tell me a little bit about, uh, I guess, where you typically find yourself writing. Do you write at home? Do you do the whole hipster thing where you take your laptop to Starbucks and sit in a corner or um, do you have to find a nice park bench in, in a sunny meadow? <laughs> wow. No, no, no. I am incredibly boring. I, I sit at home and I write. It doesn't mean that I couldn't write anywhere else, but I, I value the the silence and, and the only place I can really control that is at home. Yeah. Do you, uh, um, do you listen to music when you write? I know, I know I say a lot of authors, but I know several authors that usually, I guess to, to kind of get the writing juices flowing, they listen to music. You know, it's a, that's a, I love that question. And I asked it myself on Twitter once a, a year or so ago, I think, because it often seems to me, and I, and I asked the question specifically because I was starting to believe I was the only person on the planet who doesn't write to music, who can't. Mm-hmm. So I don't, but uh, I put that question out there. I was like, this is to the writers. Does everybody listen to music when they write? Or, And I did get a lot of people tell me that they don't, but the overwhelming majority do. And every time I see people talk online and they're, you know, yeah, just listening to Black Sabbath while I'm writing my novel. I'm like, how does that work? <laughs> you know, or I'm listening to trash metal and I'm like, are you kidding me? If a bird farts outside my window and my chapter's ruined. <laughs> I can't, I just, I can't because I'm hearing that and I'm not hearing the world inside the book I'm writing. When I'm writing, I'm in it. Yeah. And any exterior stimuli, any, any sounds, any ambience like that will take me out of it. So when people start, you know, start talking about the the music they're listening to, gentler music, I could probably try that and, and see if it worked, but I just, I honestly don't believe it. I think I'd be listening to the music too much and I couldn't tune it out. Yeah. But I can't have dialogue where there's two people talking to each other in a story while somebody's crooning lyrics to my left. I just, it would, it would knock me out of it. Yeah. Same reason. Like I can't, I can't do it in coffee shops because if that sound of that espresso machine gurgling and choking over in the car, I can't, I can't tune that out or, you know, Johnny Q over in the corner screaming into his phone about his his stock exchange shit. <laughs> I I can't I can't do that. And there's I envy the people who can, and I I feel you know I I, I greatly respect them for that because it suggests a level of discipline they have that I don't, and that pretty much sums up my entire writing process. I have no discipline whatsoever. I write when the words are there and I don't when they're not. And I don't beat myself up if I decide, you know, after writing a paragraph that I should just probably go play Xbox. <laughs> and that's that? also why it's taken me six years to write this novel. <laughs> Is that what you do in your spare time? You just you just go play Xbox? <laughs> uh, well, I do love it. I mean, and I'm I'm going to become a champion of these people, these naysayers who are all about, you know, video games are crap, you shouldn't play. They're an absolute incredible form of storytelling yeah and uh some of the, i mean some of the best stories i've heard over the past couple of years have been through video games 
Um, but yeah, so I, I have a great deal of respect for those and I do enjoy them. I don't, you know, I don't do any multiplayer. I don't get in there and start blowing people's heads off in Call of Duty and find that fulfilling in any way. Right. I'm more the single player story driven games, RPGs and stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, I love them. Um, but it's not the sum total of what I do. I love to listen to music. I love to, you know, I love to get out and go to bookstores and see some of the day. But, uh, and museums, of course. I love museums. I love art galleries, all that kind of stuff. I love to soak myself and saturate myself in art, other people's art. Yeah. And I, I read like a maniac. So, yeah. Yeah, that's it. But I have to write at home. Um, I could write anywhere else. I could write, you know, hotel rooms like that. Anywhere that's quiet, I can write. I could write in the library. But I just, I would say 99% of what I've done, I've written here. I yeah, I, I'm kind of the same way as far as outside noise goes when I read. I mean, I guess even with, with writing reviews, like when I when I write a review, I usually listen to some music, but it's got to be pretty soft music because I'm sitting here trying to concentrate. And if somebody else is saying words or singing words, it just kind of throws me <laughs> off. Um, but as far as like reading, like sometimes it has to be completely silent. Like there can't be a drip in the sink or, you know, somebody, yep. you know, hammering on something two streets over. Like it just, it drives me crazy because it's so quiet except for that one thing and your mind just automatically goes to it. But that's exactly the same. Yeah. As the writing, I can't read with music or anything else. If I'm sitting beside someone who's watching TV, I just can't read. Yeah. I'm here. I'm hearing the TV and that's all. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a, a Tim Meyer's probably going to find this pretty funny if he listens to this episode, because I'm having a podcast episode in a, in a couple of weeks, but um I actually read his newest that comes out in April called Dead Daughters uh, at a dance competition this past weekend, literally in a auditorium with like, we'll say a thousand screaming women and girls. I'm sitting in the back reading it on my Kindle. No idea how I did it, but finished it all in like a, I don't know, three or four hour setting. Uh, I, I was pretty impressed with myself. No way. Yeah. No way I couldn't do it. <laughs> You know, I don't know how I did, but, you know, I definitely got some stares because, you know, most of the time the dads are sitting with their wives. Well, I'm like kind of sitting by myself in the back. So I kind of look like a creeper a little bit. Um, (laughs) I I feel like I don't have that vibe, but I definitely got some looks. (laughs) Now, if they knew what what I was reading, then it'd really be bad. But (laughs) yeah. No, I can't. I couldn't do that. I mean, it's it doesn't even have to be that kind of wall of sound for me. It can just be anything. I, I can't. I, I will immerse myself in whatever the source of that sound is. If I'm going to a, a concert, I'm there for the music. Yeah. But I'm not going to go to a concert and have a book in my pocket because I just there's no point. These two things cannot exist in the same universe for me. And I think you I think you'd have somebody slap your book out of your hand if you pulled that out of the concert. <laughs> So yeah, like, yeah, you or the, you know, here? the band stopped playing and the lead singer going, "Hey, you out there? What are you reading?" Yeah, exactly. Is it any good? Yeah. <laughs> you gonna tweet out about this? <laughs> this look like a library, you man. Right. Oh gosh. Yeah. Uh, so uh, tell me. Obviously, we know what you write now. Uh, tell me a little bit about your writing process. So, kind of. From when you get an idea to putting it to a page to actually, I guess, finishing it, which you've already told us that you've been working on one for six years, so we mm. won't talk too much about finishing novels. But <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't. No, clearly, I don't know enough about finishing novels. 
Um, uh, my my process is pretty much the same as it is uh, for everything in my life. It's kind of chaotic. It's just, uh, I mean, Sour Candy, for example, was written three years after walking through Walmart's parking lot and getting inside, being grateful for the cool air, and immediately hearing this child screaming in one of the aisles. <laughs> and I... I think that my reaction was just to say, fuck. And I felt really bad because I said it a little too loud. And then I thought, you know what the ultimate revenge would have been for my disdain for this poor child screaming its lungs out would be if I got home and that child was at home and it was mine. Right. Despite the impossibility of that happening, if I got home and suddenly I am now responsible for the very thing that I was annoyed by earlier. And but that whole sequence of thought, that that connective tissue, occurred to me piece by piece over the course of three years, usually when I'm working on something else, mm. until I sat down and wrote it. And Kin, I, the novel, I wrote uh, a few days after coming back from the road trip to Florida that's actually mentioned in the novel. Uh, so, you know, I wrote that, I think, in maybe five months. Wow. So it it doesn't, I can't write, here's how you do this, because I don't honestly know. It, it depends on a lot of factors. Sometimes the ideas are easy to write. Something like The Tent I wrote, I think, in two days. Um, and there's other things, shorter stories have taken me months to write. And sometimes years, as evidenced by this latest thing. Now, that's not <laughs> to suggest that I have been sitting here writing it for six years. It's just that I've put it aside a lot of times because I didn't like something about it or something needed to be reworked, but it's a complex uh, plot. So there's lots of moving parts and I have to keep rearranging them and I'll keep doing that until I'm satisfied with where they end up. And maybe it'll never come out. I don't know, but that's the joy of writing too. If it doesn't, if it's not satisfying, you go do something else. So, uh, so I guess this new novel is, uh, is your wins of winter, huh? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. If only I had the uh, the breathless anticipation of the audience and the the <laughs> bank account and you know, yeah, that's my winds of wind wind of something. Oh my gosh, dude. I, I can't tell you how many times I get on Facebook because usually it's like those fan, the fantasy groups that you get in and yeah. or or even his Facebook like uh, feed. You'll see him post one new thing. It could be like a throwback picture of him. It could be. You know, the new prequel coming out or, or whatever. And you always have like 50% of the people going, when are you going to finish the freaking book? You know, and it's, it's like, I think it's so funny that how people think it's up to them, how writers need to get their books out quicker. Do you know what I would do if I was him? And I've thought this a lot. If I was George Martin, I would disappear. I would vanish. And there'd be an announcement from my webmaster or whatever, whoever looks after his website, assuming he doesn't do all of it, would be, uh, <clears throat> I went to find George this morning and he was gone. But there was a note on the floor and it said, follow these clues for the final manuscript. Oh, gosh. Now, this would last 10, 15 years. There'd be intentionally vague clues, but somebody who had just studied his entire body of work would finally put it all together. It'd be like D.B. Sweeney. It would just go, it would go years and years and years and people would be, there'd be all sorts of theories. People would be tearing each other's heads off online, contradicting each other. Then finally, 15 years later, after almost everybody has forgotten about it and they've remade Game of Thrones and there's 65 spin-off shows, 
somebody in a small little temple on a Scottish island finds the manuscript and they tweet out to everybody, I found it. Holy shit, I found it. And then it goes viral, it erupts. Then the guy opens the manuscript and it's just 75,000 pages with fuck you written on it. <laughs> oh my gosh, that sounds like a fantastic idea for a short story. Please jot that down. And, <laughs> we'll, we'll, keep, and we'll keep this podcast episode just for that. <laughs> the best part of it is right next to it is George R. R. Martin's moldering fucking corpse. <laughs> And he's just and got, he's, he's just and got he's the smiling. <laughs> he's surrounded by bottles of the finest whiskey known to man, all of them gone. And he is dead with a smile on his face and probably a boner in his pants. <laughs> oh my gosh. That that is the best end ever, I think. Uh or or you know, but I'm not gonna lie though, when you first say he's gonna disappear, like I don't know why, I just like automatically thought Dave Chappelle. Because, like, nobody knew what happened to him for, like, years. And then all of a sudden he yeah. comes back and he's doing drunk stand-up everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, I mean, obviously, you know, I love George Martin. Um, and, I, I, you know, I hope he's with us for another 40, 50 years, whatever. But uh, I just it, – it intrigues me. I don't think I'd ever want that level of success. People have asked me in the past, you know, what's your ideal um, career level? And I think I'd rather be one of these people who just puts books out every now and again. Everybody buys them, loves them, reads them. You can live comfortably. You can make your bills. That's it. I don't need to own seven houses. I don't want yachts. I don't want to be in the public eye all the time. Right. I just I just want to be able to do what I do without ever having to worry about, oh, shit, they're going to take my house on Monday. You know? Yeah. And And that's really it. I want to, you know, if I've got anything extra, obviously, you know, look after my family, more than that, look after as many people as possible. But I don't want this fame. And I think we're, we're becoming fame obsessed where it's impossible. And it's part of that thing about publishers demanding get on Twitter and be somebody. Mm-hmm. It's becoming indivisible, the line between somebody who sits at home, writes stories for to entertain people and reality show stars, you know? Yeah. And I just want to tell the fucking stories and I just want to entertain people and after that, because what it, George Martin's situation, while well, he's clearly, you know, well able for it, at least as far as we know, he does have these legions of people dogging him to get this book done. And the thing is that writing doesn't adhere to a schedule. A publisher might demand that it does, but I mean, you cannot force something like that. You can't, I'm going to sit down now and finish on time. Nobody's mad at me. I would hate to not finish something to be working on something and have a day where the words aren't coming yeah and and wake up to sixteen thousand people baying for my blood on twitter yeah yeah and, and i think it's only gotten worse since the show ended because you know everybody was like oh well, you know we'll have winds of winter when what was it what season six or seven or whatever season came out and they're like so yeah. we'll actually be able to like know what happens and then you know everybody sits there and dogs the the showrunners for just making kind of making a mockery of the last season, which for the most part the season was fine. It just it ended abruptly, and and so people were like, "Well, we, well George, we need to know how it actually ends. So you need to freaking hurry up and get these out." It's like it's like guys, I don't know you squats exactly, but that's the thing. But like, and I see this across all forms of medium. You'll have a uh, we'll say Blumhouse. They will announce, hey, we're doing a new Halloween. 
And there's, if you look at the comments, there's like 300 people going, trailer, please. It's like we just announced it. Would you just, Jesus. Right. It's these people who was like, I need the next thing and I need it now. I need it now. I need it now. And then they get it and they go, eh, it was all right. Yeah. Now where's the next thing? Give it to me. You know, we're, we're basically become fucking Pac-Man. <laughs> we're just walking around the place going, doot, doot, doot. You know, <laughs> gobbling up all the entertainment and getting angry at the people for not providing more now when I want it. Give it to me so I can hate on it tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we, we talked a little bit um, kind of in between the the maximum session amounts for the podcast about, uh, you know, like ratings and people writing reviews and so forth about how, you know, people are like, how dare you say that that book was only one or two stars or how can you – I how are you rating this five stars? This book was terrible. Like, and, and we were kind of like, you know, you, you had mentioned like, who really cares? <laughs> Here's the thing. Here's the summation of the entire thing. And this is such great wisdom. I've actually grown a big white beard just to tell you this. <laughs> How you rate things, whether it be books, movies, comics, or your porn, is nobody else's business. Nobody. How you write your reviews is nobody else's business. Your opinion on something is nobody else's business. Now, if you share it and somebody says, hey, I disagree with that, that's fine. That's their right, too. But ultimately, how did we get to a point in in the history of humankind where we have so little to concern us that we spend all our days monitoring how people write their books and monitoring how people write their reviews on those books. Yeah. Read a book. If you enjoy it, that's fantastic. That was the objective. If you hate it, that's unfortunate. <laughs> you Feel free to tell the world that you loved it. Feel free to tell the world that you hated it. Or, I, and this is a novel idea, shut the fuck up. <laughs> that, I like that. That's a, that's a very nice summation of it. And yes, I, I do think I, I see the beard uh, coming up in your profile. Yeah, um, wizard hat and everything. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, 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 you know, I, I kind of feel the same way. I, I had, when I first started doing the book blog, because, you know, I, I enjoyed getting books early and reviewing them and, and telling people, hey, you definitely need to go check this out if it's, you know, whatever, if you like that kind of stuff. Um, but I kind of started seeing how it affected people on social media. And I go, you know what? I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be that person that goes, hey, check out this review. And when I don't get any likes or comments or shares or something, then I'm like, well, man, I must just really suck at this. He goes, no, it's really just, you know, you're putting it out there because that's what you want to do. You know, you're not everybody's going to be a YouTube star. Not everybody's going to have a podcast that gets a million views, which would be great if I did, but that's not why I'm doing it. Um, but I've kind of gotten to the point where I'm not going to finish a book and then rant and rave about it if I didn't like it. Because yeah. it doesn't matter at that point. It's like if I don't like it, I'm probably going to stop within the first 50 or 75 pages. Because if I continue on, then I'm going to find a reason to just tear it apart. And I don't want to do that. And I'm not going to you know, do that to an author who spent all this time writing this book and put, put all, you know, they're all into it because, you know, from what I've, what I've been told, 
as long as you know you're happy when you write it and you release it, it shouldn't matter what anybody else thinks. Right, um, but the thing is too, though, that if you feel compelled to write something that you, you know, a, a review of something that you really, really disliked, mm -hmm. there is absolutely nobody who should take you to task for that. Right. You you paid money for the book, and even if you didn't, if you got it from NetGalley or you got it, the publisher sent it to you. Mm -hmm. A publisher sending you a book is not they're buying your review. Right. They're giving you the book and say, hey, give us your honest opinion. You go, the honest opinion is it's dog shit. Sorry. <laughs> but here's, I will tell you the distinction. And it's still, even this distinction comes down to the, the auto's fee wings, which never, ever, ever matter. <laughs> and they shouldn't. That's not anything to do with this business. But I will tell you my personal thing is that if I read a review, and I, the older I get, the less I read reviews anyway. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's an argument against tagging authors, because just if I don't see them, I don't care. Right. I appreciate you reading, liking it, but honestly, just either enjoy the book or don't. <laughs> and if, if I read two reviews, one glowing, absolute, I'm the best writer on the planet, that's fantastic, but I don't believe I'm the best writer on the planet, and no amount of people telling me that is going to make me believe it, because I've read other authors who are. Right. <laughs> if it says if the review the negative review says this was an absolute terrible book, I hated it. Oh god, everything didn't work for me. I actually don't mind that. Mm -hmm. That doesn't bother me. That makes me think, well shit, you know, that's I I actually feel regret that you didn't enjoy it because reading is you sitting across from me and me telling you a story. And if at the end of that you're looking at the clock going, Well that sucked, then I'm thinking, Well shit, I gotta work on this. But if her negative review says nothing more than I wish this author would kill himself after he's killed his entire family <clears throat> and that he lives on in infamy for his crimes, that actually bums me out because I think this person hated this book so much they want me to die. <laughs> right. And I can't actually fathom that level of dislike. So ultimately, I don't give a shit what you think about your books, but I do give a shit what you think about me. Right. I don't like people not liking me. And if my book was so bad that it left you hating me, well, shit, that's going to take me some time to get over. Right. <laughs> I, I was, I was thinking you were going to say, I just completely ignore it because it is what it is. But you took it in a direction I was not expecting. No, because it's like, imagine you're walking down the street and some stranger yells across, Hey, your fucking face is stupid. <laughs> I don't know him. There's no reason for me to care about what he thinks, but I can't help it. Yeah, I will. I'll be walking down the street bummed out that maybe he was right. Maybe my face is stupid. And if that's the case, how did I get this far into my life without anybody else telling me that? <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> it makes everybody I've ever met a liar. Right. <laughs> it's like, why didn't you tell me 10 years right. ago? And that's some big shit to have to contemplate. <laughs> oh, man. Or, you know, I mean, I guess you could say that, like, if you have a book out for, say, five years and you get a couple of reviews and you don't really look at them, but just like one day you're like, I wonder why I haven't sold any. And you go back and you see that one review where this guy's like, I hope he kills his entire family and kills himself. You go, well, man, maybe I should have read reviews sooner. <laughs> yeah, or maybe I should have just killed myself and my family oh, and gosh. this guy would be happy. <laughs> and then you'd have a Netflix special about you. Absolutely. And wait till they excavate my basement. I'll tell you, they'll be doing spin-offs and t-shirts and hats, and mugs and toys and shit. 
Yeah, you'll you'll have the you know you'll have the little cardboard with the plastic piece on the outside, but just like you know your your body with your stupid face apparently, and and just like a bloody hand. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I could be the next Hannibal Lecter, only my cooking is not that advanced. I mean, I can still fuck up a steak. I don't know how to slice off a piece of somebody's ass and make it tasty. <laughs> if you ever do find out, please don't tell me. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I won't be coming back for the next the, the follow up interview. How right, the, the follow up oh, podcast. Not episode. well, David. Not well at all. <laughs> yeah. So next year, after I've read the story about how you've made the perfect butt fillet. <laughs> yeah. Don't ask. Don't ask Paul Tremblay how he got those bite marks on the backs of his legs. Oh gosh. <laughs> oh man. There's a reason his book is called Survivor Song. Right. <laughs> Oh my gosh! Uh, let me get let me gather my thoughts. My face hurts from laughing. Um, all right, so we talked obviously a little bit about how you got into writing, where you write, and your process. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about, I guess, your first introduction into your first write? You know, your first book you published, which was Ravenous Ghosts. Like, you know, were you super nervous about it? I mean, uh, and I'm assuming you self-pubbed that one, correct, through Amazon? No. Um... That actually was published by an outfit, short-lived outfit called 3F Publications. Okay. Um, they sprung up right during the gold rush in indie publishing where um, lots of people were throwing their hats into the ring and publishing authors' first books. And I'll tell you, it was akin for me, who wasn't very long in this country, who had had my first publication at age 18 as a short story in some two-bit magazine in Ireland. This was the big time for me. I couldn't distinguish from that random house. I thought, well, this is it. I've made it now. And all I saw were visions of being Angela Lansbury in Cape Canaveral. What? No, that's not right. Cape Cod? No, that's not right either. Cabot Cove. <laughs> yeah. On Murder, She Wrote. I was just going to be writing, you know, like throwing novels out there and then solving crimes in my spare time. Instead, I just got kind of horrendously drunk and called famous writers to tell them I had just been published and I was delighted and had any advice and they said, yeah, stop drinking. Um, but you know, it kind of the glass wore off after a while when I realized that that was my first exposure to, you know, I got fairly good reviews, but there was an awful lot of people who said, yeah, this guy's not ready for prime time. Oh. And I honestly have to agree. I mean, it, I sent the book to some writers I really admire and some of them gave me some kind words and others said in a very nice way, this is terrible. Go kill your family and then yourself. <laughs> but a uh, stupid face. This is a recurring, this is a recurring thing. Yeah. yeah. Now that I see it's unlocking the vault of memory, I'm starting to realize that I've actually been told that more often than I, than I remember on first blush. So yeah, there's there's a theme there, uh, but no, you know, I was I was really proud of it, and I still am, you know, to to have and all the stories had been published in other places, a few of them in professional outlets, so it wasn't like I was completely green, but I definitely, I was definitely published before I was ready for it, and my exposure to the reality of that I think was a great learning tool, mm. and I went and wrote the turtle boy i think after that and that 
pretty much changed everything because everybody universally responded to it positively. Mm-hmm. And that, that was from Necessary Evil Press, who was the limited edition publisher, who did some absolutely spectacular hardcovers. And uh, yeah, and that kind of put me on the map. I got you. And so some of your more recent ones, I, mean, I know you've already talked about Sour Candy, which is actually my introduction to your writing. Um, I just, I kind of saw the cover and I was like, Ooh, this looks interesting. And just was like blown away. I, I hadn't read anything that was like that, I guess, deep seated in scaring the crap out of me. Um, <laughs> yeah. because you know, I, I feel like I read like a lot of surface horror or it was like splatter punk horror. Um, yeah. and it, I was like, Oh, there's, there's, there's only two, two ways to go about horror. You just get, you have the creeping horror and then there's just blood and guts and body parts going everywhere. Um, and then, and then I start reading here and I'm like, this is really freaking dark. And it's like dark every page. And, um, and every, every anytime that anybody asks me if I recommend any horror, cause it's like, I, I, you know, I come from more of the fantasy and science fiction, kind of background that's where my blog is kind of tied around but i love the the random thriller or horror novel out there but sour candy is probably the one i recommend the most to anybody because it's easily accessible it's fairly short and so if you're kind of just wanting something to kind of cleanse your palate or if you're trying to get into the genre i feel like that's a like a gateway drug into yeah. the genre um and then obviously from there you know i started reading some more of your stuff. I think Blanky was the next one that came out that I got to. Um, and then of course your most recent one was, uh, the anthology. We live inside your eyes. Would you mm-hmm. mind talking a little bit about that one? Um, that's actually, I don't know if it's weird to say it. I mean, I, I suppose that we should be saying it about everything, but there are books that I put out that I like more than others. I look, especially, you know, the more distance I get from them, I look back and think, eh, you know, it's all right. And there are other books I'm really, really proud of that I think, yeah, I nailed what I was going for with that one. Mm-hmm. I actually am very, very fond of that collection. It just, everything kind of came together for me in a moment where I thought, I love every story in it, which is not always the case. There's a couple that, you know, I'll send a book to a publisher and say, could you like throw two more in there for page count? I'm like, okay, and I'll stick in things that I don't think are bad, but they're not ones I'm in love with. Mm-hmm. And I love every story in that book. Um, and of course, the new one I wrote for it, uh, The House on Abigail Lane, is one of my favorite things I've written in years. And it was because it was just so easy. It was just, I sat down to write it, and I think I didn't sleep for two days and just kept writing it. Mm-hmm. And uh, and people have responded very positively to that. They've uh, They're sufficiently creeped out. And it goes in directions they don't expect, which is, of course, always what we what we reach for. But, yeah, I love it. I love that book. And I'm, I'm very pleased with the response it's gotten, too, both from readers and, you know, producers as well. There's a lot of interest in some of the some of the stories in there. So we'll see. I got you. Yeah, I, I thought it was really interesting because it was one of the first anthologies I think I read that had a clear beginning and end. <laughs> Yeah. Um, you don't see that a whole lot. You really just see, hey, here's a bunch of short stories, and they all have somewhat of a resemblance to one another. But like this one, actually, like you start, you feel like you're reading a book, and then it's like boom, 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 boom and then you have an ending. Yeah. And and you know most of them is like 
hey, this is, you know, I'll, I'll say, for instance, uh, Full Throttle by Joe Hill. Like his, the beginning story in that is kind of about him growing up with, you know, having Stephen King as a father. And yeah. then, you know, because everybody has Stephen King as a dad, right? right. Um, <laughs> and then it's just like, you know, short stories and I feel like kind of a random order and then it, it just ends. Um, and uh, even one of my favorite short story collections that came out last year, which was Growing Things by Paul Tremblay, um, didn't have really a clear cut beginning or end, but then, you know, I, I read, we live inside your eyes and I was like, well, this is, this is kind of neat. I, I could get into this. And yeah, it was absolutely phenomenal. I, I loved every single short story in there. Um, but I just love how everything got tied together and it made you not only need to read every story in there, but want to read every story in there. Cause there's, there's some anthologies you can, you know, you can kind of come across a story like, oh, I'll skip that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, one. exactly. And I'm the same. If I pick up a, a collection by, by uh, an author, I will, it depends on the time that I'm, that I'm reading it. If it's late at night and I'm tired, I'll pick the shortest. Mm-hmm. If I wake up in the morning, I'm in the mood for a big sprawling thing. I'll read the longest or sometimes the title of it will appeal to me. Yeah. You know, so I'll hop around, and there's probably, I probably have about 300 author, single author collections that I've never finished, that I've hopped around, read a lot of stories from each one, but never sat down and read from start to end. So, you know, I'm the last person to be trying to guide a reader into doing that. But I just thought it would be interesting to have that connective tissue. And I think that um, if I remember correctly, I think uh, – Clive Barker did something similar with the Books of Blood, okay. didn't he? I'm I think sure. so. Maybe I, not, I haven't but... read a lot of Barker, which is unfortunate. I should probably be, you know, put up on a stake or something. But <laughs> I, I, no, I don't. I, I don't feel that way. I mean, this like <laughs> we all come to we all come to horror in different directions. But I would right. strongly recommend you read his Books of Blood. They're absolutely phenomenal, and they've aged really well too. Okay, yeah, I mean that, that's like when I. Because like I, I took a break from reading, um, probably like towards the end of high school and through college, and kind of came back to it about five or six years ago or so. And uh, you know, now that I'm kind of entrenched, I guess, in the quote unquote book community, every time mm. I say, "Oh, I haven't read that," they go, "Oh my gosh, are you serious?" I'm like, well, I haven't been reading for twenty years. <laughs> like I, I was like, I've been reading for five, and I'm trying to read everything that's coming out now. Like it's but really hard to get back. That's the thing, though. People people always act like you should be ashamed of yourself for not having read these books. But the thing is. They, everybody should be envious of you getting to discover them for the first time. Exactly. And I feel like it's about half and half. Uh, but I've, I've got a few that always dog me, which is fine. It's all, it's all playful, but you know, they're like, Oh my gosh, you know, I can't believe he's going to read the new series without reading that one. You know, it's just, it, it's, it's all fun and games, but yeah, there, there's a lot of them that are like, Oh my gosh, you get to experience that for the first time. And I feel, I feel like there's, there's just so many that I'll get to do that with. Yeah. Um, and again, ultimately, like we keep saying, nobody's business but your own. Right. <laughs> Read what you want, when you want, love it, hate it, nobody else's business. Exactly, exactly. So uh so what are you what are you working on now? Are you, uh, obviously you said you you're working on the one you've been working on for 6 years. I mean, are you, I assume you're working on multiple things or do you Oh yeah. Yeah, for the first time ever I'm working on about 12 different projects at once. Usually I just I can only focus on one at a time. But out of necessity now, I'm working on a bunch of stuff. Um, I can't say anything about a, a fairly awesome project I'm doing right now. I've been sworn to secrecy. And usually I'll say that because I'm not sure if I'm allowed to talk about it. But in this case, I've actually expressly been asked not to. So okay. um, the publisher will come out and announce something themselves. But in the meantime, 
it is a fantastic project that I'm writing new material for. Um, that's a, a nautical horror story that I'm really excited about. And staying in that same vein, I'm writing a novella called uh, The Widows of Winding Gale for release, hopefully, this summer. Okay. There's the Sour Candy prequel coming as well, and other stuff I can't talk about. But that's enough. That's enough. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, you, you got me at Sour Candy prequel. So, is this yeah, what's going to be called Sweet Candy? <laughs> so what is this? Is this going to be called Sweet Candy? You're going to have like a Sour Patch Kid moment? No, actually, <laughs> damn, I wish I thought of that. No, it's uh it's actually called Ward W A R D. Okay, and it's uh if you remember, well, you won't because nobody will. But it's a uh, a character that's mentioned peripherally in Sour Candy as okay. the original mother of Adam the Kid in okay. Sour Candy. Okay. So it's going and telling her story and how everything led up to Phil encountering that kid in the store in the first place. Oh, so you're doing like a you're doing a reverse Mallerman since he's since he released Bird Box and is doing Mallory. You're going to do Sour Candy and then just do a prequel. <laughs> hey, I've I've actually stayed the night at Josh's house. I don't know if I'm comfortable with you invoking the term reverse Mallerman. That was supposed <laughs> to be between us. Uh, I actually had him on the podcast back in, uh, in January, man. He is, he is so much fun to talk to, but uh, oh, he absolutely is. he was, he was talking about his like plethora of manuscripts and, uh, yeah. you know, like books. And then I think like the next week he had like just strewn them all about his like office and, and put, I think posted on Instagram or Facebook or something. You but, see, and I never, I never saw those when I was at his house. If I had, I would be releasing a load of novels right now that would be <laughs> nothing like my style. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, it's it's because it, it's, it's interesting because you're talking about working on, <clears throat> excuse me, so many different projects at once, and I and I feel like a lot of his is just like he's written it and then just like shelved it. And I guess I yeah. guess you've done that with a few of yours as well. But where you talking about you kind of shelve it and then come back to it. And I feel well, like I a lot have, of his I is just have, like waiting to release it. <laughs> yeah, see, the, to me, that's insane. Like if they're finished and they're just sitting around, I would go out of my mind because I have at last count a million words of unfinished stuff in my files. And that's unfinished. That's stuff I give up on. And he has all of the, these manuscripts finished and I just want to strangle them. <laughs> I'm like, are you kidding me? You just, they're done. What What are you waiting for? Right. Put them out there, and I'm being completely selfless. I just want to read them. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm the same way. I, I saw, uh, I think he had sent uh, an early copy of Mal uh, Mallory out to uh, Jonathan Jans and I think yeah, John I hate Taff. those guys now. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and uh, yeah, I'm just like just the the seething jealousy that's just like coursing through my body. And I know it's, you know, through a lot of other people too. Cause just imagine it's what it's like for me. I know the guy, I thought we were friends. I thought <laughs> we were friends. I'll have to, uh, that's I'll a, have to a horrible send, way to find out. Right. <laughs> I'll, I'll have to send him a comment. I guess be like, Hey, Keelan has some words for you. <laughs> no, no, don't, don't even mention my name. We're done. We're through nothing but bad blood now. Right. Right. Yeah. That, that, that's just a competition, right? No more reverse mannerments from this guy. <laughs> oh gosh, <laughs> there's there's too many things I'm, I'm going to take away from this conversation. They're just going to be prevalent <laughs> on social media now. Uh, killing your entire family and then yourself and reverse mannerment. Um, right. Oh gosh. All right. So speaking sometimes of, all in the same night. Right. Oh gosh. Um, so so speaking of not having read 
Mallory uh, as a, as an early copy. As, is there anything fairly recently that you've read that you'd recommend, or any authors that you think need to get more recognition? Yeah, all of them. But yeah, right. You know, I hate that question because invariably I will forget about seventeen people who I might have spoken to three hours ago, and then I look like a dick, <laughs> which I am, but I don't like looking like that. Right. So. Uh, I would say let's circle back to the first one you mentioned is The Only Good Indian, Stephen yeah. Graham Jones's novel, which I would be surprised if anyone comes close to beating that as the, the best novel this year. That one absolutely blew me away and creeped me the hell out. Yeah. And I'm I'm pretty much probably because I do this for a living and because I read so much of it, I've become kind of immune to that level of, Jesus, that went right under my skin. But <laughs> but that But that did it for me. And I love when books do that. When books do that, I just I just want to force everybody to read it. Yeah, you know. Yeah. But uh, let let me think. Uh, the problem is, I get asked to read a lot of books now for blurbs and stuff like that mm-hmm. from publishers and authors, and I can't talk about those ones because either I haven't finished reading them, or, or you know, people don't even know they're coming. Yeah. Um. So what you're telling me is you actually have read Mallory, and you're just pulling them all out. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, no. He's no. There's no. Uh, there's no getting over the fact that I've been denied that one. No, that one's going to haunt me for a long time. You know what's going to happen is it's going to come out and I won't read it. Pointedly, <laughs> you come out and be like, you know what, Josh? Not happening. <laughs> yep. I'll even post pictures of me holding it and looking all surly and nonplussed. <laughs> or you'll just you'll just put it on, you know, with your pup. And just be like, here's here's a great picture of my new hardcover and my dog, and I'm never opening this book. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I'm all salty now. I won't get over that for years. <laughs> but uh, no, I would say in terms of recommendations, um, Stephen's book is definitely one to to read. Um, oh man, I completely blank on this. It's ridiculous because I spend half my day on Twitter or on social media being exposed to other people's books and I go, that's it. I read that one a few weeks ago. It was fantastic. But I'm so up to my eyes and stuff that I just can't, you know, I can't think of select titles anymore. It's okay. If you want to, you can just piggyback my tweet out tomorrow with the episode and you can just put like, oh yeah, this is who I miss. (laughs) Well, I would say for anyone who wants my recommendations, the best thing to do is to keep an eye on my Twitter because when something really blindsides me and hits me across the face that is just worth crowing about, then I will. I don't have Goodreads anymore. I got rid of it because it was starting to get on my nerves. But I I just don't like... I don't like apps and social media sites making me feel like I'm obligated to do certain things, you know? Ah, I got you. Other than be civil, which is should be effortless to everybody, but apparently isn't. <laughs> oh man. Well, awesome. Well, uh, I'm kind of out of questions. Uh, I don't know if there's anything else you'd like to cover. I mean, you're going to be super secretive about your upcoming books. So obviously I'm not going to get any more information out of you about those. I will say I can give you only that. Uh... No can't yeah yeah no No, i was i was going to say something but no i without knowing the full scope of exactly what i'm allowed to say i probably should just say nothing (laughs) i thought you're i thought you were just leaving me on there (laughs) (laughs) no i would never reverse malerman you never (laughs) uh new twitter handle (laughs) there you go (laughs) 
Maybe. All right, so Caitlin, so uh, I've given you a few moments to think about some author recommendations or book recommendations. What what you got? All right, well, I had to filter out ones that I've been told I'm not allowed to talk about. There's, uh, there's one or two coming up that are I'm really excited about that I wish I could just prattle on about, but I'd get in trouble if I did. So um, one of the recent ones I've read was uh, True Crime by Samantha I'm going to get this wrong. Kolesnik, I think. Kolesnik? Um, Yeah, which blew my socks off. And I think it's no surprise that everybody's talking about that now, and they'll, I think, continue to. Uh, The Reddening, Adam Neville's latest. It was, uh, I think everybody knows him from The Ritual, which I also loved, and the movie, the Netflix movie they made, which I also loved. Oh, so good. I'm all... I'm always really pleased when an adaptation I really, or when a book I really like gets a really good adaptation, which is funnily enough, you were talking about the outsider there during the break. And um, I think they're doing an absolutely fantastic job of the, uh, the HBO show of that. I had some issues with the last part of the novel. So it remains to be seen where they go with the, uh, with the series, but so far it's just, it's ranking up there with one of the best adaptations of his work that I've seen. Yeah, absolutely. I don't, I don't know if you've been able to watch the Mr. Mercedes uh, show on audience, but it's really good too. Now I think the I outsider saw- is definitely better, but um, I thought they did a great job, even though you know they changed a little bit from the source material, but it's really good. Yeah. I saw the first season of Mr. Mercedes. I really, really liked it. And I think that uh, the casting of Brendan Gleeson oh, in yeah. that role, is just fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah. Every, and, I, and I was just telling you, that, you know, I, I went back and, and listened to the outsider. Then I went back and listened to the Bill Hodges trilogy. And yeah, I can't like listen to that without seeing Brendan Gleeson as Bill Hodges. It's like, Oh yeah, definitely. He's, any, anytime a Bill Hodges uh, pops up in anything of Kings now, it's that's who I see. Right. I think it was just inspired casting. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, and I, and I agree about the outsider. Um, you know, I, I feel like it, you know, it's, it's a little slow. And like, I've heard that from some people that haven't read the book and I go, yeah, but like the book is kind of slow. Cause it, it hits you super hard in the beginning. And then it's just kind of all this trying to figure everything out. And then it slowly gets quicker. And then, yeah, that ending was a little disappointing, but yeah. I'm yeah. To see but I love that they're the taking show. some of the, you know, throwaway parts of the novel or the, the, the little vague bits that he didn't expand on and they're expanding on them in the show. Yeah. To, to just maximum effect. I'm, I'm really delighted with what they're doing with it. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. I, I, you know, I actually haven't read any of Adam Neville's books and I feel really bad for saying that, but I did watch, watch the ritual and I thought it was great. And I've ended up grabbing a copy of the book based on it. And I've got, I think I've got the reddening on Kindle unlimited. I just haven't gotten to it, but yeah, I, need I would to start say if you, if you liked the ritual, you'd probably love this one as well. It's okay. just, it's got a similar, like, I mean, what I love about his books is the atmosphere that he cultivates in them. Mm-hmm. It's just this real claustrophobic sense of impending doom. Mm-hmm. And uh, he does the same in the reddening. Another one actually worth uh, that that reminded me of. Not that not that they're similar, except in terms of you know serious shit coming down the pike. Is uh, <laughs> Sherry Priest's novel, The Toll. Okay. I really liked that one too. She's another uh, author who appeals to me. I mean, she's a great writer, but I love that whole 
ability to weave this ever tightening net and it's just you almost find yourself suffocating by the end of it by the just this feel that everything's coming down around the characters yeah yeah and another one that actually yeah see now i'm remembering another <laughs> one that uh i had for ages and only managed to read just before christmas was um jason arnop's ghoster yeah I remember his book, his first book, I believe, the first horror book. Anyway, the um, Last Days of Jack Sparks was yep. one of my favorites of that year. Yeah, and it's the same kind of a thing where he uses technology to, in this case, getting ghosted—a woman getting ghosted by a guy that she was getting really close to. They're going to move in together, and all of a sudden, he stops responding. So she tracks him down or tries to, and uncovers this whole weird systematic ghosting of people for nefarious reasons. And uh, I, I remember distinctly one moment in it where a character looks in a mailbox and it scared the shit out of me. But <laughs> And I just, again, I'm so immune to this stuff that that was the literary equivalent of a jump scare. I just went, da! Right. <laughs> so I love that. I love when, when books can do that because you're you're at a disadvantage when it comes to the jump scare when you're dealing with literature because you've time to ponder it you're in a safe place reading it and particularly when you write horror for a living you you can see usually see the mechanics at work before this happens yeah. so you know it's something's coming yeah but this this there was no indication of that and it, it just struck me i loved it i got you yeah i actually uh, read those back to back i guess the latter part of last year um, and remembered really liking those. Yeah, I actually just finished. Um, I don't know if you've read any of Peter Klein's work. He's just released the fourth book in his Threshold series, which honestly didn't even realize it was a series until I finished this book. But it's called Terminus. Um, mm. But they're basically all in the same universe, but they have different cast of characters, take place in different parts of the world. And actually, the one prior to this, uh, I think it's called Dead Moon, actually takes place in space. So, uh, but this one's like more of like a cosmic horror, so Lovecraftian. Uh, if you're yeah. into, you know, old gods and tentacle monsters and stuff like that, but it's really good. It's kind of like a, you know, uh, alternate universe type novel. Um, but I think it's right now it's only on audiobook. So I actually got that one from Audible. And then, um, you know, besides Dead Daughters, which I read last weekend. I kind of went through some of uh, Tor Nightfire's little short stories that released on Google Play a little while back. Yeah. I think they had like 35 short stories they released on there. So I've been slowly just kind of combing through those. So I've read two of Wendig's. I think I read Brian Evanson's, or I guess listened to it. Uh, and then, but I really enjoyed uh, Victor Laval's Daddy. Um, that, that's a really good one if you if you just like want a quick little story. Oh, I love uh, I love Victor Laval's work. Yeah, he's great. Um, yeah, Battle of Black read, Tom was so good. <laughs> oh yeah, that's actually my favorite of his so far. I read the Changeling and the Devil in Silver, I believe they're called, over mm -hmm. the summer last summer. Yeah, um, and I just saw a picture tonight on that he posted on Twitter for a new manuscript that he's editing. So I'm excited to see what uh, I think. Um, Lone Women, if I remember correctly, something is what like it was that. called. Yeah, something yeah. Like that. So I'm excited for that. Another one that I, I have on deck that I haven't read yet, but if the buzz is to believe, to be believed is going to be really good, is The Luminous Dead. Yeah. Uh, Caitlin Starling. I'm, yeah. I'm quite excited to get into that because unlike you, I don't actually read an awful lot of science fiction. And 
you kind of have to hint that there's something dark at play for me to want to uh, want to delve into it. But this is one of those cases where it's kind of impossible to ignore the 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 good word on this one. So right, that in the cover kind of kind of hooks you in, right? Oh, I love the, the little the horror cover. element. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I actually think. Um, I mean, I've got that one. I, I need to get to it, but I'm actually going to potentially have Victor on the podcast in the summer. Um, I reached out to him earlier this week. Um, yeah. He was like, yeah, but I'm like super busy right now trying to finish this book. So let's <laughs> touch base. Um, but I think that'd be really cool to have him on and, you know, talk about his new manuscript and some of those, his other stuff. But yeah. He's, he's a fantastic writer that and I think he's one that you know, he's got a pretty good following, but could definitely use some more, um, some more readers. Um, oh, I'd say I'd say it's coming. I think you know it baffles me that he hasn't exploded um, into the mainstream as much as his work demands. But it feels to me it's one of those cases where it's just a matter of time. Yeah, yeah. It's just like you, you know. know I hope I hope so. Anyway, I mean, it's, yeah, his work is certainly worth it. Yeah, yeah. You know, you just kind of continue filling up the balloon until it bursts, right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, awesome. Well, Keelan, I, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. I know we've, uh, this is probably the longest episode I've done so far. And, uh, but honestly, I think it's all been great. I think we've had a great conversation, been able to talk about a lot of great books and it's been awesome actually talking to you for once done on social media. <laughs> Cause yeah, I feel like that's exactly. wow. what all we do on a daily basis. I, I was starting to think you were a bot, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but everybody that's listening, uh, you can find Keelan on Twitter uh, at Keelan Burke. And you can also find him on Instagram. Uh, it's Keelan Patrick on Instagram. Uh, you can also go to his website, KeelanPatrickBurke.com. And if anybody's interested in book covers or book cover designs or blog uh, header designs, banner designs, stuff like that, uh, he also does book covers and so forth um, at uh, ElderLemonDesign.net. But you can find that handle on Twitter at Ellie Ma, or sorry, L. <laughs> I'm gonna mess this up every time. At E Lemon D Design, or on Instagram at Elder Lemon underscore Design. But um, he also has the website ElderLemonDesign.net, which he's designed over seventy uh, over, uh, covers for over seventy authors, including Tim Levin, Brian Keane, Scott Nicholson, Richard Layman, Bentley Little, Hugh Howie. Uh, Vincent Zandry, and then he's also done some for publishing houses like Cemetery Dance and Random House. So you're just kind of all over the place, aren't you? Yep. <laughs> and and you're, you've done so much that I can't keep all my words straight. So obviously, we've been talking for a long time. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm actually gargling salt water over here. <laughs> but again, I, I really appreciate you coming on. Continue to uh, scare the crap out of us. Um, with all your books and obviously it's pretty awesome to hear that you've got 12 in the works um, and definitely looking forward to what you got coming out next and especially that prequel to sour candy because still one of my favorite reads to date so all right thanks david i appreciate the support hey absolutely absolutely and, uh, and guys definitely check out his stuff um and like i said his his most uh recent release uh we live inside the rise is out and you need to go grab it so thanks again keelan hope you have a great rest of your evening you too man thank you I hope you guys enjoyed my chat with horror author Keelan Patrick Burke. Stay tuned this weekend or maybe even the beginning of next week when I drop an episode with fantasy author Peter McLean. We'll be talking about his War for the Rose Throne uh, series that he's currently working on book three for. Uh, also next week, I'll be chatting with fantasy author Justin Travis Call about his 
upcoming U.S. release of Master of Sorrows, which has already been released out in the U.K. I'll also be chatting next weekend with author Tim Levin about some of his older books, but especially about his upcoming release in April called Eden. Definitely looking forward to all those chats next week. But guys, just thank you for continuing to come back and listen in on these episodes. Uh, would love any feedback you want to give. Uh, reach out to me on Twitter at DWalters29, or you can shoot me something over at the blog at fanfightaddict.com. Thanks, guys.